Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Paul Rees. Now, Paul is a former member of the British Army, RUC, and is now a published author. Good morning. Good morning, Paul. Thanks so, so much for uh, taking part in this today. Um, where are you in the world at the moment? I'm just outside Carnarvon in northwest Wales. Oh, lovely. Well, there will be no investiture there this year, apparently, Un- unlike the one we witnessed when we were a lot younger. 1969, it was, yes. <laughs> I remember my mum, I think we all got the day off school. I mean, I was at school, I don't, no disrespect, I don't think you were then. But um, <laughs> but uh, I was uh, 15 at the time. 15, oh, well, there you, there you were. Um, and I remember watching that and there was a very young Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, um, going through the investiture at Carnarvon Castle. So where did it all begin? Right, well, I was 15 when Northern Ireland kicked off. I was at boarding school and about to leave. And I was about five foot four, weighed seven stone, dripping wet. And the careers officer asked me what I was going to do when I left school. And I told him I was going to join the British Army. When he finished laughing, (laughs) he told me I wouldn't last two weeks. Um, I had to wait till I was 17. Um, I made myself a, a promise that because it was kicking off in Northern Ireland, if it was still going on when I joined, I was going to go there. Wow. I joined up in March 1971 in the Royal Corps of Transport, the fittest alcoholics in the British Army. (laughs) And I did my basic training. I was then posted to London as a staff car driver, driving senior officers. In 73, I was driving the Chief of Staff London District when my posting to Lisbon, Northern Ireland came through. He offered to get me out of it, and we had a disagreement over that. And I arrived in Lisbon in Northern Ireland, where I stayed until the end of 1978. Um, I was a driver to a senior officer, the brigade commander. And when his two years finished, another one came along who asked me to stay on for a further two years. I did. And then another one came along and asked me to see out my time in Northern Ireland. Um, So I did. And... When I was leaving the army, my then wife said to me, I'm rather fed up with you being in the army in Northern Ireland. So I joined the police in Northern Ireland. You just can't please some people. (laughs) Um, I did my basic training and was posted to Lisbon, which they classed as Slipper City, um, because it was the easiest of all the stations to get posted to. Right. Um, After three years, she decided that we had to leave Northern Ireland. Either she'd go on her own with my son or I came with her. So I returned to the mainland. Right. I was rather glad, actually, because I had realised by then that I wasn't a very good policeman. I'm sure that's not the case. Um, sadly, it, 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 <laughs> I'm honest, it, it, it's true. I wasn't a very good policeman. Well, we'll, we'll come on to that. So you're born in Coventry. Um, yes. How did you end up in, in a boarding school? Um, I passed my 11 plus and I have a brother 10 years my senior who had attended King Henry VIII school in Coventry and he was the great sportsman, the great academic. When I went for my interview to go there, I saw his name everywhere for cricket, rugby, swimming and I decided I didn't want to go there because I didn't want to follow in my brother's footsteps. And so I failed the entrance exam. And the head teacher told me either I didn't want to go there or I was stupid. And I said, well, it's a combination of both, to be honest. (laughs) And so we went home and my mother said, right, that's it. I'll find you a school. And she found me a boarding school. Wow. And how old were you then? So you'd done your 11 plus. 
You were 11. Wow. Yeah. I stayed there till I was 16. Um, I passed several GCSEs and uh, decided I'm going to join the army. That's that's me. I'm gone. And what, and what school was it that you went to? It was the City of Coventry Boarding School near Clearby Mortimer, uh, Kidderminster. Is it still going? No, it's now a Christian um, retreat. Oh, okay. I went back there last year uh, with my son and met up with one of my old masters. And my son said to him, I can't believe my dad. He still calls you sir after all these years. <laughs> old habits, mate. You can't you can't shift them, can you? That's, that's the thing. No, you can't. No. I, I mean, they were great teachers. Uh, we had a couple of bad ones, but uh, by and large, they were great teachers and, and they taught me a lot. Absolutely. And it, it's the moulding for the rest of our lives, isn't it? I mean, I was talking some, some the other day about um, role models and what have you, and I think that that's what's missing in so much of society now. We, yeah, we have, we don't have true role models. We have we have, and I'm I'm not religious as such, but we have false idols, and um, we don't have true role models, which is a, a real shame. Don't so, have enough discipline either. No, we don't. We don't, and you know we've 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 um, we've softened. So take me back to 1971, Royal Corps of Transport. So you're driving around in Bedford trucks and all sorts of things. Where did you do your basic training? In Aldershot, in Buller Barracks, which is no longer, sadly. Right. And, I mean, you're talking about a time where we're only 26 years after the end of the Second World War. Yeah. So were there still people serving that had served during the war, or I suppose they were just coming to the end of their service? Yeah, there was a guy, I think his name was Alfie Betts, who was coming to the end of his 28 years, I think it was, and he had joined up towards the end of World War II in the Royal Army Service Corps. And he came to Buller Barracks and was talking to us. And then he came to uh, Regent's Park in London, where I was stationed after that. Oh, okay. And he was a cracking fella, and he had seen everything, done everything. He'd got the scars and the videos to prove it. Excellent. Yeah, and we, we forget about that generation sometimes, don't we? I mean, it's uh, we, 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 we stand at the Remembrance Day parades and all very proud, but we forget that, you know, what some people actually did go through. Um, yeah. So, Buller Barracks, and then we get posted to, you've done two years at Regent's Park. What was that like, coming to the bright lights of, of London? That was amazing. Um, yeah, we did a three-week staff car driving course. And at the end of it, you had to drive around London and the car had a pint glass of water on the bonnet. And if you spilt more than one inch, you failed the course. Really? How, yeah. how bizarre is that? Yeah, I bet. And what were you driving? Um, Austin 1800s. And then I drove a Vauxhall Ventura. And, and were they the standard staff cars at the time, or was that that's just something that's the eighteen hundreds were? The Vauxhall Ventura was a new introduction to the army, and I drove the chief of staff, London District, and a brigadier. Excuse me, a brigadier. I drove Brigadier O'Cock. Um, received in the post a, a parcel bomb, which I went to his house and I handed him his mail. Oh. He went upstairs and ripped it open with his thumb and it blew his thumb and his index finger off. Wow. After that, um, I drove in civvies and I had a different civilian car every day. Wow. So that, so the uh, this is an IRA, this was an IRA tactic, wasn't it, in yes, the 70s? It was, yeah. So the, the, the post would have gone into the mailroom at the barracks and then you'd have picked it up? No, and... it went to his home. Oh, it actually went directly to his house? Yeah, they knew his home address. Wow. He was um, yeah. a very, very lucky man. I mean, were you still there when it exploded? Yes. Crikey. I thought his cooker had blown up and I went running upstairs and there he is holding his hand. So called for an ambulance straight away. The military police arrived probably 10 minutes later and took over. Wow. That's a bit of an eye-opener, isn't it? I mean, you're you're still a very young man and you're – you think you're relatively safe, although, as I say, the IRA were in full flight at that that time and um, yes. causing no end of problems. 
Yeah, I was 18, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a welcome to the British Army um, type of thing because you, you expect it on a battlefield, but you don't expect it around the, the, the CO's home. No. We're, so you're at Regent's Park Barracks, and what was that like in those days? It was great. I mean, we had rooms above the old stables and we used to park the staff cars underneath. And we had a little naffy in the corner. Uh, but mostly we went out on the town at night time. But uh, so the same barracks is where the SES um, trained to storm the Iranian embassy in 82. When you um, when you moved away from, from London, you, you go to Northern Ireland. How did you find that transition? Um, difficult to start off with. Um, I was in Seatful Barracks in Lisbon, which was massive. And it was a, a culture shock getting off the ferry, um, being met by the movements guy who was a Lance Corporal, um, being shepherded into a white coach with no writing on it, uh, but knowing that everybody knew who was in that coach. And the Lance Corporal Movements guy was the only one who was armed and he had a, a branding nine mil pistol and a civvy jacket over his uniform. So it was quite strange. Yeah, it's a bit unnerving because, uh, I mean, as I say, we're looking at a, a really aggressive time in the in the history of Northern Ireland. So yeah. how, how many people would have been on this on this bus, on this coach? I think there were about 20 of us and we were all getting off in Lisbon. Wow. And I know you said it's called Slipper Central or whatever term you use, but nevertheless... Slipper it, City. Slipper City, but it still saw um, a number of uh, attacks and, and explosions over the, over the course of time. Yeah, there were a couple of bombs smuggled in, um, which killed a couple of people after I'd gone. Uh, they missed me again. Um, and, yeah, we had a, a few incidents there, but uh, driving a brigade commander was an experience in itself because his name was Richard Gerard Wright and I write about him in my book A Humbling of Heroes and he was there were two types of officers there are boots officers and there are shoes officers shoes officers are staff officers they never get out from behind their desk and they probably couldn't read a map um, boots officers which Dickie Gerard Wright was was a guy he was down in amongst his troops and he looked after them and they worshipped him for it and to be honest with you he on his crew, we would have died for him. He was a fantastic fella. And what was his background? Um, Royal Anglians. And he'd been in Northern Ireland on various tours uh, and was known by both sides. And in fact, when he left, he had letters from both sides congratulating him on his ability to see the various perspectives from both sides and not to be partial. He was totally impartial. That is that's commendable because there was a lot of vitriol around the British Army and and the things that took place as we we continued to read unfairly I would say, um, yes, yeah. but yeah, that it's it's they're interesting people and as I say they come from a those sorts of commanding officers come from a different a different lifestyle different background when you. Yeah. Um, when you arrive in Northern Ireland, as I say, we're we're in full flow with the uh, with the IRA and what have you. What was it like living in? Did you live in barracks or were you out? I lived in barracks to start off with. And what was that like? Um, different. Uh, yeah, there were so many of us there. There were different units. Uh, we had the Royal Pioneer Corps. We had the Royal Signals. We had the Military Police. We had the Intelligence Corps, which is not very aptly named, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, we had a, a variety of different groups, organisations, units. Um, NITAT was there at one stage, Northern Ireland Tactical Advice Team. Um, yeah, it was different. But but the whole place, I assume, was bolted down. You weren't, you know, you, you didn't have people on, on camp and you didn't go out socialising. Oh, we did. Yes, in Lisbon, we went out. Um, quite often, there was a, a one particular bar called Corkins, which um, there were two levels. The locals used the ground floor and squaddies used the upstairs. Oh, really? Uh, we, yeah, because we, Lisbon is predominantly uh, Protestant. Right. So, um, it was classed as a safer environment. 
Wow, I didn't think that. I, I just assumed, I, know, I mean, assumption is something we shouldn't do, but I just assumed that you were going to be bolted down and never going out to meet the public. No, that was the units in Belfast who arrived for a four-month tour and they were bolted down. But in Lisbon, we had a, a great deal of freedom. Wow. That's, yeah, that is that is interesting. What was it? What was it like actually in the camp, though? The atmosphere in in the camp. It was yeah, it was like a typical squaddy camp. There were punch ups between various units, but by and large, we had discos every. I think it was Wednesday and Sunday, uh, which we used to call the grab a granny night. Um, yeah, there were bingo sessions, uh, football matches, self defence classes. You know, your typical squaddy camp. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm my my dad was in the army, as I've said before in other podcasts. So we grew up in Colchester. So, um, yeah, so it was a military policeman. Don't hold that against me. But um, no, I, I can tell you a true story about military police. I've got a lot of respect for them. Um, but I was driving the brigadier to Aldergrove Airport, and we we drove past the MP Land Rover, and the Lance Corporal was at the side tugging the front offside wheel. And the brigadier said, Corporal, for God's sake, get out and help him. <laughs> so I went back and said, what's the problem, mate? And he went, well, i got a puncture, can't you see? I said, well, what are you trying to do? Well, I'm trying to get the bloody wheel off. He said, I've got the nuts off. I went, great, now try jacking it up. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a, a true story. And I walked away and the brigadier went, Oh my God! No wonder the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! And was that over there? That was in Northern Ireland. Yes, at Old Grove Airport, yeah, which is now Belfast International. Oh, Airport. I see. Oh, is that what it trans- transformed into? Yeah. How did your family feel about you being in in Northern Ireland? What was the? I mean, you were a youngster, and there's things they're reading in the newspapers. Well, my father had died when I was thirteen. Uh, my mother. Um, hated the fact that I joined up in the first place and was not happy when I went to Northern Ireland. Um, but my brother being 10 years my senior, he was an RAF police sergeant, a uh, snowdrop. I still don't talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was a bit, she was okay. Well, you'll get posted in Germany. And I said, no, I'm going to Lisbon. What in Portugal? I said, no, Northern Ireland. And she wasn't happy at all. No. But, and, and we saw this week that you know the the, the IRA are still active um, with the shooting yeah. of the the uh, PSNI chief inspector. I always want to call it yeah. the RUC. I'm sorry, but that's yeah. that's you know that that is what I was brought up on. Um, yeah. And so the, the the threat is still out there. Can you just explain what what the protocols were around checking cars and, and what have you? Because there'll be people listening to this who have got no idea what you would have gone through out there with your own personal life and, and what you would have done. On a typical vehicle checkpoint, and I don't know from the um, working units, as I call them, the ones that came over for four months, like the Royal Artillery, the Paras, the Marines. Um, but when we did it, you you stop a car, one would go to the driver. Um, the other three would be covering the bases, the area around you. You check his license, and if he's a known person, you then get him out, and he adopts the position against the car. You frisk him, search him, then you search the car, and then if all's clear, you let them go. But always, uh, we did anyway. Always with a sense of politeness, even if a guy was like Jerry Adams, you would still treat him with politeness because you knew one wrong word. And they'd be jumping on you. Yeah, absolutely. You'd have the press all over you. You'd have the MPs looking all over you. So you, you played it cool. And when I hear about um, when people say, oh, that patrol stopped me and they abused me, sometimes it happened because the guys were frustrated. They were, they were fighting an enemy they couldn't see. Yeah. So they got frustrated, and it's understandable. And, and behaviour breeds behaviour, doesn't it? Because if you stop somebody yeah. and they're polite and you're polite back, and and I get this, you know, stop and search with the with the police. It's always, you know, the police are the oppressors. But actually, when you look at the yes, there are people that are bad. Make no mistake, and, and we, we yeah. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't tolerate it. But actually, when they're stopping some of these kids and the kids are straight up in their faces and they, and they wonder why there's you know animosity and aggravation at the end of it. Yeah. 
Did you ever get to meet any of the, um, or get to see any of the um, notable uh, members of the paramilitary? The one I remember most is once I'd left the army, I had three months before I could join the RUC. And I got myself a job as a van salesman selling crisps. And they were called um, Sam Spuds, Mrs. McGreedy's crisps. And they, the, the sales manager, Ronnie McMorrow said, right, off you go. There's a van, 480 boxes, go and sell them. No training, nothing, just off you go. (laughs) So I went out and I came back at about two o'clock in the afternoon and he said, you're not quitting, are you? I said, no, I've sold out. And he couldn't believe it. He checked the back of the van, he went, okay. So he loaded me up again and said, right, can you do Belfast tomorrow? So the next day I drove into Belfast and I saw a, a club and went in, and in those days I had a, a thick beard, long hair, and I thought, I'm going to put my Irish accent on here. So I started talking in my wee Irish accent, you know, there. Don't worry about the case, you know. And I got chatting to a guy, and he said, Did you play pool? I said, I do. He said, Come on, we'll have a wee game. So he beat me, and they bought 48 boxes of crisps off me. And as I was going out, a guy said to me, Do you know who just beat you at pool there? I said, no. And he told me the guy's name. I won't say the name. It, he was the IRA brigade commander for Belfast. And he said, you're lucky. If you'd been him at pool, you wouldn't be walking out now. Really? So, yeah, and I probably stopped a few people, um, probably not knowing them, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, because like you say, they were the unknown enemy. Nobody, you, because everybody looked exactly the same and, the, you know, they all yeah. had the same action. You know, there's there's no um, distinguishing marks. And I, no. I, I mentioned it in a, in a previous uh, podcast. I went out and played hockey against the IUC and we, we went down the Protestant side and the Catholic side. And the murals are absolutely amazing. I mean, the, the work, that they are, they are works of art, irrespective of what side you, you follow. Um, but I vividly remember having bricks thrown at the, the armoured Land Rover that I was in by a load of six and seven, eight-year-olds that are just standing there and doing their stuff. Well, my first patrol in Belfast, um, in the city centre, I hunkered down into a doorway and a little boy of about four came across to me and I went, you're right, mate. And his actual words were, fuck off, you British bastard. And his mother came across and said, welcome to Belfast. Yeah, and walked off, and that was a shock to see a kid of that age giving me that level of abuse. It's a real shame, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a beautiful country, and it's um, it's, it's yeah, it's sport by a handful of people on both yeah. on both sides. Dare I say it? I mean, there there are you know whatever side they've got. It's organised criminality. It's not. It's nothing to do with religion. Now it's it's all organised criminality. It's tribal. That's all it is. I mean, these people go on holiday to Benidorm or wherever and they mingle and they have a holiday together and they, no, no problems. They get back home, they start throwing bricks and God knows what at each other. Yeah. Terrible shame. Terrible shame. So was your wife from that area? No, she was from Sunderland and um, we met. Uh, she was in the WRAC. Oh, okay. Royal Armoured Corps. Uh, Royal Armoured Corps. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about what she looked like, um, <laughs> <laughs> and we met over the phone. She was in Taunton and I was in Lisbon, and we arranged to meet up. So I came home on R and R and met up, and uh, a year later we got married, and she moved out. We got a married quarter, but within the camp itself, we were lucky. She was a Mackham as well. She was a Mackham. Yes, she hated me calling her that. <laughs> So for the listeners, and I know the stories here, but army quarters, what what are army married quarters like? In those days, they were brilliant. I have to admit, you you march in and the uh, civvy guy there is, you have to check it all over, lampshades, it's clean and it has to be spotless. And it, it was they were amazing. It was a three-bedroom um, semi we were in and there was a massive green outside uh, where... We could kick a ball around, and yeah, it was they were amazing. I, I'm told these days they're horrendous, but in those days we had to look after them. Yes, and if you, you got fined, you did because when you got marched out, if it wasn't as spick and span as when you went in, 
you'd, you'd be in all sorts of problems. Exactly, yeah. Again, but then the army have sold off a lot of uh, military homes and, and whatever. It's, it's it's a real shame. How long were you then in after getting married? How long were you in Northern Ireland? Um, I got married in. When did I get married? Hang on, seventy six. So I was in the army for two years with her, and then two and a half years in the RUC with her. We rented a house in Lisbon on the Ballin Hinch Road. Um, and we were adopted by an ex-Navy war dog um, called Blackie. Um, and he was absolutely amazing. Really? Yeah, he was a beauty. He would he would have died to protect us. Wow. Fantastic dog. He died of leukaemia in 83. Bloody hell. Great shame. How did you end up adopting the dog? Um, we saw an advert in Visor magazine, which is the Northern Ireland military magazine, uh, looking for someone to adopt this dog. And so I contacted this guy, a chief petty officer, and he brought the dog around and came into the married quarter. And my son, Simon, was about six weeks old. He was in his pram in the living room. And Blackie just lay down by the pram. And then Simon started crying and Blackie sat up and three of us were about to pounce on him when he walked out of the room went upstairs he came down with simon's little blue teddy which i've still got wow um and he placed it in the pram and then lay down again and the, the cpo said that dog's yours that dog loves you wow totally amazing experience wow and what was it used for in the navy i mean it's a, a war dog but i mean what's what what, what uses would they have in the navy i asked ask to be honest no um but i was given a list of words that i couldn't say right and a list of antidote words like i couldn't say attack so i couldn't say if i'm watching football go on attack because the dog would probably go for the tv well i never yeah and the list of antidote i can't remember half of them to be honest but uh yeah it was a, a big german shepherd long hair and absolutely amazing dog well, I never. Because, yeah, I mean, they are, they're different to police dogs. They are, you know, the army army dogs are different to police dogs. And um, my dad was a dog handler out in Cyprus. And by the time he got back, oh, to, yeah. back to the UK, the dog had killed the, the new um, kennel handler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a kennel maid or, you know, a chap in Cyprus. This is in the 60s. And um, the dog was super aggressive and went on and killed somebody. But... Yeah, it's a great shame. Um, so how did it come about that you joined the RUC? Um, I'd wanted to join the police and I went on my pre-release course in Catterick and I did the entrance exam, the basic one. And they came to me and they said, right, you've passed. And there was a pass mark out of 200 for different police forces. Um, the RUC and I think Lancashire the pass mark was 180. The pass mark for the Metropolitan Police was 70. Right. And I got over 180. And I, I said, well, I'm going to stay in Northern Ireland. I might as well join the RUC. And I came back home, gave my wife the decision, and then went and slept in the barracks for three nights while she fumed and ranted and raved. <laughs> and wh where did you go and do your training? In um, Belfast at Castle Ray. And were there many other uh, former military? Because it was there was quite an attract attraction to British soldiers. I think the whole course, uh, because I was a full time reserve, um, which meant um, you got your part time reserves who do when they want. Full time reserves are the same as full time regular coppers. And uh, I think there was like fifteen of us on the course, and probably twelve were ex military. So how does that work? So you're full time reserve, you get paid. Yeah, and you're part of the RUC effectively. Yes. So why? Do and you do exactly the same as the RUC do. You just don't go through God knows how many weeks training in a skilling. I see. Because you've because already got that background. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering how that worked because, as I say, but what about local procedure and and the law element? You learnt that on the job. Is it still the same? I don't think so, to be honest. I haven't got a clue. No. I don't know if they've got reserves in the PSNI. I'm not sure. 
and and because we're talking 1978, and we're just yeah. going into a completely different um, style of terrorism because you look you're now looking at hunger strikes and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, what was that like policing Belfast at that time? I the only time I did Belfast was when we did the um, oh, what do you call it? district mobile support unit. Right. And you would be called in from Lisbon. There'd be like six of us in a Land Rover. You'd be called in when something specific happened, like a raid on an illegal gambling club or something in Belfast. And we'd be there as support. So I didn't really get involved in anything like that. It was basic policing in Lisbon, you know, traffic, um, sorting out squaddies that are getting drunk in the Chinese restaurants and that sort of thing. And what was that like, though? What was the atmosphere like, having gone from the military into the into the police? It was interesting because the Protestants hated me because I was a policeman. The Catholics hated me because I was an English policeman. Squaddies hated me because I was a policeman. So, you know, it was uh, interesting. <laughs> quite, a, quite a lonely old place out there. Yeah, it, I think that's why the wife, and she also got a bit fed up with being searched every time we went into shops uh, and so on. Searched by... That civilian searches on every store, wherever you went in, you were searched. Really? Yeah. And that's because people were putting bombs into into shopping yeah. centres and, and what have you. I yeah. saw I saw an interesting picture the other day where a a parade of shops, I can't tell you where it was in Northern Ireland, but they literally had cages on the outside of the Yeah. So that if a bomb did go off it would prevent the blast from taking all the debris into the streets. Yeah, and pubs um, had the same uh, big cages, the the anti um, shrapnel cages. Yeah, you could tell a pub, you could tell a police station, totally um, armoured up. Yeah, because they used to have big. Was it Sangers? The big. Um... Yeah. And what what were they like? I never went in one. Did you? I never had to. Thank goodness, I was never on guard duty. <laughs> Because I, I, when I went out there, the, the 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 place where we went to, the RUC hosted us, and this is a few years ago, and there were still problems out there, but it was it was fortified. You know, you still had yeah. you still had the the armed um, guards at the front and what have you, and and we went yeah. to Stormont as well, and that was that was an experience. Yeah. So local policing in Lisbon at at that time, how did that all work for you? Not too badly. Um, in my book, A Humbling of Heroes, I, I cite um, an incident where um, I was out with a young WPC. Uh, yesterday is the 38th anniversary of her being murdered by the IRA. And what, was, what, what was her name? Rosemary McGookin. I, I mean, I can see you, you're getting upset and... Um... You know, and I can feel your pain, mate. So Rosemary and you worked together. We did, yeah. And we went to um, we were sent to a domestic, and she said, "Right, follow my lead." And knocked on the door. This little woman opened the door and berated us for about ten minutes. She really abused everybody and everything under the sun, and then announced that her husband was upstairs and he was armed with a knife. Oh, my life. So I said to Rosemary, right, stay down here. I'll go and have a word. And I went upstairs, and he's in the bedroom, and he's got this knife, and he's waving it around. And he said, have you come to arrest me? I said, hang on, let's, one thing, first things first. How long have you been married to that woman downstairs? He said, 20 years. I said, you deserve a medal, mate. She pissed me off after 10 minutes. <laughs> he started to laugh, and he sat down. And I said, come on, give me the knife. So he gave me the knife, and Rosemary came in. Are we arresting him? I said, no. Have you got somewhere else you can go, mate? He went, yes. I said, right, come on in. And we took him out of the house and drove him home. And he actually came to the station the next day and spoke to my inspector and said he was impressed by the way I handled it. He thought he was going to get a kick in, which some of my colleagues would have done had they gone there. Yeah. And, yeah, so it diffused the situation and it sorted everything out. So, yeah, it was that sort of thing, you know, parking tickets, um, speeding, uh, your normal British Bobby yeah. job, really, apart from the fact that you might get shot at at any minute. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I remember 
dealing with domestics even on the mainland in the in the late 80s was completely different to the way that domestics are dealt with now and right you know it is right because people got seriously hurt and they 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 needed that extra support but so you, your colleague rosemary you say it was 38 years ago yesterday yeah 28th of february 1985 she was in newry police station um in the uh, porter cabin canteen um a priest had arranged to meet an inspector there strangely he didn't turn up you can make of that what you will mm. the ira sent over nine mortars and killed nine RUC officers. Oh, wow. Rosemary was one of them. And I was out of the RUC by then. I was uh, in a bakery supply company and saw it on the news and thought, I hope she's okay, and then saw her name next day. That's terrible, mate. Yeah, and and there's a lot, I mean, behind you, and this isn't going out on uh, as a video, but behind you I can see a, a picture of... All you know, yeah. your murdered colleagues from from the RUC, and uh, yeah, it's it's terrible. It's terrible, terrible waste of life, mate. And it's still it's still going on out there, though. I mean, the, the yeah. shoot, shooting last week, but the, things are getting. I don't know whether they're suppressed by the media. I think it's part of the the Good Friday Agreement that the, the media don't report on everything. Um, but yeah, there's still not on the mainland. No, that's that's what got us over there. Was it would be reported on Ulster TV, but the mainland wouldn't hear about half of it. Really, and we always said if KAD turned up, we knew it was bad. Yeah, because it was it was daily news when we were kids. When I was a kid, but now yeah. we we obviously we're hearing about the the Brexit issues and what have you, and Richie going out there trying to schmooze people. What was the the motivator? Um, I mean, you, you've you've said that your wife had had enough, but had you had enough of policing by this time? I'd realised by then that I was never going to be a successful police officer. I wanted to be in traffic, um, but I got my police driving card. But I knew that because I was English, I'd never get to that point. Right. And the realisation hit me one night in a pub, and I went home and I said to the missus. I think it's time we went home and we tossed a coin, Sunderland or Coventry. I lost, we went to Sunderland and uh, yeah, started again, basically. Mm. And what did starting again look like? It was hard work. For three months, I couldn't find a job. Um, I walked around three different job centres every day for three months and that was about a 10 mile round trip before I finally stumbled across a van sales job and thought, I can do that. And I applied for it and had the interview at four o'clock and started the next day. Wow. And you stayed up there? Uh, for three years. I, was, I became a van salesman up there for three years and then went to uh, Bristol as a training manager. Then I got my own depot in Bodmin in Cornwall. Then I moved up to Cardiff, then across to Seven Oaks in Kent, and then back to Bristol. Right. And became national operations manager after 14 years. Wow. And, and did you miss the military and the, the police at this point, or were you, were you missing? Oh, yes. Yeah. I miss the military now. You know, if really? I could go back, if there was a war now, I'd, I'd sign up. But being nearly 69, they probably wouldn't want me. Um, but as long as they put a GPMG on my wheelchair, I'll be fine. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting because... And I, I ask people if you if you could have a word with yourself now, you know what what would you be saying to a, a young Paul Reese in nineteen eighty eighty one? You know what would you be saying to? Stay in the police. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, the police was was good for me. But you, I mean, you've travelled. You've lived in South Africa and, and Greece. How did that come yep. about? Um. I left the BFP, the company I worked for um, in the bakery trade, because I was offered a job as a sales manager in Johannesburg on a two-year contract. And I thought, yeah, why not? I was single by then. I thought, yeah, I'll go for it. So I went over there. I did me two years, and I loved it. It was a great place, fantastic. I applied for immigration to stay and carry on the job. 
Um, but they told me, no, we've got enough white people. We're trying to get rid of them. So you have to go home. So I came back to the UK uh, with £320 in my pocket, nowhere to live, no job, no prospects. Um, I wrote on pieces of paper everywhere I thought I'd like to live, and I folded them up, and I got a waitress to pick out one, and she picked out Coventry. So I went back, booked into a B&B, went to the job centre next day, got a job as a truck driver, and then found somewhere to rent. And then after that, I I lasted there six weeks before I got a job as a sales manager for a non-destructive testing company in Coventry. Um, I did that for two years. Um, during that two years, I'd gone out on holiday to Greece twice every year. And I loved the place. It was amazing. And they rang me up and said, come and live out here and run the restaurant for us. By that time, I was married with the son, my, my other son, Daniel. And we decided, yeah, we'll go for it. So we packed up, sold up, and moved out there. Wow. Good time had by all. Oh, yes. Uh, the summers were amazing. We had snow on Christmas Day, which was absolutely amazing. And New Year, it went down to minus 12 with three foot of snow. I never, and I never thought they had that much snow. They said they hadn't had snow for 20 years before I got there, so they blamed me for it. <laughs> you bloody British, you bring this weather over here, take it back. So you've, you're, you've now returned back to the UK. Yeah. When did you have your first heart attack? Six years ago. Wow. Uh, up here in um, Carnarvon. Um, I woke up in the morning thinking I must have slept funny on my arm because it was killing me. And... The house I rented, I had my little workstation by the front door and it was a lovely day. So I opened the front door and the pain was still bad. So I took a couple of paracetamol and then I started feeling the pains in my chest. And uh, a butcher who was walking past saw that I was in pain and called for an ambulance. And they whisked me off to hospital and said, yeah, you've had a heart attack. Um, I said, okay, fine, great. And I came out the next day and they, I said, you know, you can anything going in there, operate. No, 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 you'll, you'll be fine. And then a year later, I had another one. And then then a third. And I was told by the cardiologist that if I had a fourth one, I wouldn't survive it. Last February, I had my fourth one and came out and went, yes, survived it. Wow. Well, have, you, have they put stents in or what's the... They're going to put stents in, but they said they wouldn't do it at the time because my heart was okay. You know, I've got a what's called a GTN spray. If I get the pains, I have to spray that into my mouth. Right. And that opens the um, heart valves up. So for anyone listening, the, the, the symptoms are you get a pain in your left-hand side. Yeah, your left arm and then the chest. And, and last year I blacked out twice. Um, hence why DBLA revoked my driving licence. Oh, no. They were worried about me blacking out. Um, I can get it back in September as long as I haven't had any more blackouts. Right. So, yeah, fingers crossed. That's hard, though, isn't it? Is that when, you, when, you, when your licence is gone, that's a part of your lifeline, isn't it? 51 years of driving, over a million miles in 11 different countries, and then all of a sudden it's, you can't do it. Yeah, that that is that's that hit me hard. Yeah, I can imagine. But you're an author now, sir. I am. Um, my first effort at writing was for Reader's Digest. Crikey, when was that? Uh, Ten years ago, I sent off a story which they published and gave me a hundred pound. I thought, hey, this is good. Wow, I'll cope with that. So then I started writing for SEN Magazine, Special Educational Needs Magazine. And then I wrote, uh, when we moved up here, I knew I had a story, so I wrote it, and I gave it to a friend of mine. I said, just run through it and see what you think. And he said, get it published, it's great. But I sent it off to various literary editors, and I had a nice stack of rejection letters. Mm. And someone said, publish it yourself. So after a lot of trial and error, I managed to get it published, and I was gobsmacked that it sold 250 copies in the first two weeks. I just didn't think it would take off like that. 
How easy is it to get a book published then, as a self-published? Um, well, you go on Amazon, you go on Kindle Direct Publishing, you upload your manuscript, you design your own um, cover, you press publish, and then you go out and market it. As simple as that? Yeah. It, the-, the process is not that simple because uploading your cover, you can have them made for you, or you can design your own. I designed all my own apart from one. Um and you've got to get it right, the bleed over of the page and everything. The manuscript's got to be perfectly formatted. It's got to have equal sides. And it's a bit of a faff the first time you do it. Then once you've done it twice, it becomes easier. And you just set the formatting on your computer to the same, and then you're up and running. And edits, I mean, somebody proofread it for you? or do you... Yeah, I've had people proofread. Um I even paid a guy to proofread uh, my book, £50, got it published, and then people were saying to me, have you had that proofread? That is horrendous. <laughs> so I, I've taken it off and I've gone through it myself. I I write, I edit, I proofread probably 10 to 20 times with every book. Wow. And you still miss something. Yeah, of course. Like in, in my latest book, Going Dark, I spelled died, as in dyed my hair, as D-I-E-D. Right. And I've now changed it. So that's the only spelling mistake in that book. Thank goodness. Yeah, and it's, it, is, it happens on a regular basis. And I'm, I think sometimes I become word blind and put the wrong yeah, the wrong word in or, the, the, you know, the comma in the wrong place or apostrophes missing or something like that. And I'm, I'm not particularly good with the, the grammar element. Things like commas and apostrophes, and I, I say, no, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't detract from the story, why criticise it? Yeah. But spelling mistakes is a bugbear of mine. I hate myself for making spelling mistakes. Yeah. Or missing a word. I miss whole words out in in passages sometimes, and and that that's another another bugbear of mine. But then I've got a lovely friend who reads and listens to everything that I do, and he's very quick to publicly pick me up. But <laughs> of course. So if I want your want to get hold of your books, and I'm going to put all the links into your podcast when this comes out in a couple of weeks, but if I want your books, I can just search through Paul Reese and through Amazon. Yeah, yeah. there's a, there's another Paul Reese who writes a lot about musicians and musical instruments. He's much more prolific than I am. Right. But if you get if you take one book, let's say Going Dark by Paul Reese, and then it'll bring you to a link where you can see all the other books. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, no, that make that makes sense. And you you must enjoy that. It's an immersive process, isn't it? When you when you're writing. Yeah, when I wrote Hannah, I am the storm. Um, that was inspired by a young homeless girl that my son and I met six years ago in Manchester. Her name was Hannah, and she told us her story. And I said to Dan, we helped her out, and I said to Daniel, "There's a story there, but not the story she's given me." So I've turned this girl from a homeless waif into um, a, a clever, trained, young, crime-fighting woman. And when I wrote that, it took me three weeks because I, I stayed up till four o'clock in the morning. Then I'd get up at seven and carry on with it. Wow. Uh, I was just so absorbed by it. Does she know that you've written this book? No, we've tried to get hold of her many times. We've gone back to Manchester Um and we've been in touch with Centrepoint and the police, and she's just vanished, oh, which is a great shame. I've got a photograph of her, and I've shown them the photograph, um, but they said, no, she's nowhere nowhere around. I'd love her to have a copy of the book and 50% of the royalties because well, she inspired me. Well, if you let me have a copy of the the the, the, um, the picture, if you've got it, and I'll, yeah. I'll put it on this podcast. Because you know, yeah, like you say, it's, it's important to to get it out there. Yeah, just bear with. I don't know if you can see. Oh yeah, cool. That would be that would be brilliant. Yeah, if you let me have yeah. a copy of that, that'd be superb. My son took that while I was talking to her, and we. I said to her, "Can we help you? Uh, have you eaten?" And she said, "No." So she was outside a spa shop. So I left Daniel outside and went in. Came out with a couple of carry bags full of food. And I noticed she smoked, so I bought a couple of packs of cigarettes as well. And we chatted. And as I was chatting to her, Daniel took the photograph. Um, yeah. 
so yeah I'll, I'll send that to you because um, yeah I'd, I'd like it to benefit from it I mean it, it, it's interesting because we are all you know one drink away from becoming alcoholics you know we're all we're all yeah. one one mortgage mispayment from being homeless and yeah. it, it is sometimes those people that need the greatest amount of help um, are the people that are, that are right in front of us yeah so what does the future look like for uh, Paul Reese? Well, I'll be 69 soon. I really should start slowing down. But um, my book, Going Dark, I published it and I, I've been impressed. It's it's achieved the top 1% of Amazon psychological thrillers, Brilliant. which is my best result yet. But when I published it, I realised I could have carried on going with that story. So I'm now working on that. Um, I'm working on a dystopian novel about the pandemic. Um, and it involves the vaccine, COVID and immigration. I won't, won't say any more. Uh, and I've got a third one, which is um, a detective thriller, I hope. Oh, brilliant. So the, the, um, the days are going to be full for you. And the nights, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you today. Thank you, Thank you Thank so you much for your time. Me. No, it's, it's been good. And um, I'll put all your uh, links into the into the body of the podcast brief. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you. Please keep in touch. It'll be nice to yeah. know, know how th- things go. And uh, But before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct from today? Crikey, it sounds like a police statement, man. Uh, no there you go that that sounds like everybody else I ever interviewed in a police statement so that's um, as long as I'm not under caution we'll be all right. indeed (laughs) indeed well and that's you know the the police element runs through everything that we do police and military so it's it's really cool but thank you so much for your time today sir and I wish you well for the future